This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. One of the year's biggest surprises has been the rally in emerging market assets, which have seen a pronounced uptick in investor interest amid a global search for yield. To discuss what's been driving this activity and the outlook from here, I'm joined by Kamaksha Trivedi, the Chief Emerging Market Macro Strategist in Goldman Sachs Research. KT, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So heading into the year, you and your team uh, identify the following key risks for EMs. Uh, China's deceleration, the normalization of interest rates here in the U.S., and lower for longer commodity pricing. So flash forward to today, and most people believe China's in a better position than it was at the start of the year. The Fed's looking like it's taking a more dovish approach on rates, and oil's been rising. Does this explain the EM rally? I think it is a big part of the explanation. I think if you look at the past three to four months, I think you've had a cocktail of circumstances which have been unusually friendly to emerging market assets. Like you mentioned, I think the fears around an abrupt devaluation in China abated. China's growth data actually looked like it was improving for a while. The Fed tacked dovish, which was most pronounced at the March FOMC. And then oil prices after an initial lurch lower are $20 a barrel higher. And this combination was very fortuitous for emerging markets. But what I want to emphasize that it isn't just the external circumstances that helped emerging markets. I think two other things were important as well. Firstly, coming into the start of the year, emerging market fundamentals had begun to improve. And specifically what I mean by that is on the external front, emerging markets had started rebalancing in a much more convincing way. So their current account deficits, which were significantly wide going into the taper tantrum of 2013, those had been closing gradually and happening country after country was seeing a sort of narrowing of its current account deficit. So it's on the... Due to internal factors or just the external environment? I think a bit of both, but primarily internal factors. So primarily because domestic demand in these countries had compressed, their imports had come down significantly. And so the gap between their outflows and inflows had sort of compressed much more markedly. So that fundamental improvement, I think, was important. And linked to that, valuations had also become significantly more attractive at the start of the year. So when we looked at emerging market currencies in particular at the start of the year, we emphasized the point that for the first time in several years, maybe three, four years after years of depreciation, emerging market currencies finally offered some value. So I think it was a combination of the value proposition being better, the fundamentals showing some signs of improvement, but that came alongside an external backdrop that turned out to be much better. And I think that constellation of things together, I think, explained to a large extent the EM rally that we've seen year to date. So of the factors we've discussed, U.S. monetary policy, higher commodity prices in China, which do you see as the most consequential for EM growth going forward? I would say that oil prices and U.S. rates and, and U.S. monetary policy are probably the more immediate risks, just to the extent that they are bigger market factors. So these can switch pretty quickly. We have a June FOMC meeting coming up. I think a number of Fed speakers have said that that is still a live meeting. Some hawkishness there could rattle emerging markets. Similarly, you know, oil prices have moved towards the top of the range that our commodity team has outlined. If you see some fallback, that could be a more immediate risk. But 
There is no doubt in my mind that the most consequential factor in any sort of medium term for emerging markets is the trajectory of China and how China deals with its extremely significant challenges of deleveraging its economy at a time of slowing growth. Whether that happens in a smooth fashion or in a much more bumpy fashion is going to be a significant determinant of the trajectory for emerging market growth going forward. Let's talk a little bit more on that topic and on China specifically because so much depends really on their path from here. So concerns over the currency really have abated since the policymakers went to a trade-weighted index in December. In your view, how likely is another devaluation like the one we saw last summer? I think an abrupt devaluation in a way that is not telegraphed, that sort of came a little bit out of the blue, like in, in the summer, I would like to think that the chances of that type of occurrence are less likely now, partly because I think Chinese policymakers themselves have learned that that's the not... The importance of signaling markets. That's, that's yeah. right. The importance yeah. of signaling and the importance of communicating a clear and credible policy framework. And without that, it can be self-defeating. I mean, one of the things that you saw both last summer, but also earlier this year, was that there was a devaluation versus the U.S. dollar, but because it was abrupt, because it rattled global markets, you saw a lot of China's trading partner currencies depreciate as well. So in a trade-weighted basis, they didn't actually get very much depreciation. By contrast, you look at what has happened since the start of this year. We've talked about the rally in emerging market assets, and in particular in emerging market currencies. Over this period, since about late Jan, the CNY is the worst performing currency on a trade-weighted basis. They have actually used this period to engineer a nice depreciation versus the basket that they have now stated that that is one of the things that they want to benchmark the currency against. So my view would be that an abrupt move of the kind we saw last summer, I'd say the chances of that are low. But I still see CNY weakening on a broad basis going forward. And I think that's part of you know, the easier financial conditions that China needs as it undertakes its difficult economic challenges. And I think along that path, some depreciation versus the dollar, but also a gradual depreciation on a trade-weighted basis, both I think are likely. But I'd like to think it's not going to be an abrupt move that rattles markets. KT, Andrew Tilton, one of your colleagues at Goldman Sachs Research, has described the Chinese government's recent approach as kind of a seesaw between maintaining economic growth and stability and pushing the much-talked-about and needed transition to a consumer-led economy. What's your take on that transition so far? Can China keep growing at the 65 to 7% rate it wants and delever at the same time? I think, in, you know, in your question, there's actually, I think, two pretty significant challenges. I mean, one is what you mentioned, the kind of handover from an investment, you know, capital-intensive, fixed-asset investment-driven economy towards a more domestic demand consumption-driven effort. And the second challenge is one of deleveraging the economy after one of the biggest credit buildups in the history of not just emerging markets, but developed markets as well. I mean, both those challenges are immense. I mean, if you think about the first one, History is not littered with examples of countries having done this handover from a sort of uh, investment fixed asset driven growth model to a more consumption driven model without some macro and market volatility along the way. I mean, you could argue that Japan is still living with the consequences of attempting that handover. Korea is still trying to do it. And really the last... the World War, uh, the U.S. post-World War II went from capital to consumer. That's right. I think that's exactly right. I think the U.S. is an example. And I'd say, you know, after that, the last real examples were Southern Europe. They made that 
to some extent that transition as well. So, you know, I think that's an incredibly difficult challenge and it's going to be one that is with us for some time and I think it's going to generate some volatility along the way. But to undertake that transition at a time when growth is slowing and you have this big credit buildup, I think is especially hard. And, and you know, you made a final point in your question about can they do this, you know, with six and a half to seven percent growth rate. I actually do think that six and a half to seven percent growth rate, the aim that the policymakers have is actually part of the problem because I think it is too high relative too to ambitious our... ambitious for a consumer letting. That's right. And it's too ambitious relative to at least our estimates of what potential growth is. And so you tend to get exactly what you described, this kind of seesaw, which is because the view is that growth is not sufficient, you sort of try and fall back on the, the means that you know generate growth, which is sort of credit stimulus. And you saw some of that earlier this year. Whereas if you actually had a less ambitious growth target, then you may be you know, willing to let some of the reform momentum progress and not be so tied up to a particular growth target or growth number that is in some sense too ambitious and is probably thwarting some of your medium term reform aims. One of the other emerging markets that's been much in the news recently is Brazil. So political turmoil has gotten the headlines, but Brazilian equities are among the year's best performers, and the Brazilian real has surged against the U.S. dollar. How do you account for that strong performance, and does the positive data signal better days ahead for the broader economy there? So again, in terms of accounting for the performance, I'd go back to some of the factors we talked about right up front. Brazil is another example of an emerging market country where despite it being the poster child of much that was wrong with emerging markets, underneath the surface over the past year, their current account deficit narrowed significantly. They went from a current account deficit of about 5% of GDP to something less than 2%, which we deem sustainable. Because so there of was, the contraction in the because domestic of the contra- economy. That's yeah, exactly yeah. it. Because of the contraction in the domestic economy, because of the deep depreciation of the real, which sort of improved the competitiveness of its exports to some extent, those two things together caused that improvement. So again, what I would say is, the fundamental backdrop was better coming into this year than it has been for several years. The currency was at a much more competitive level. The external side had rebalanced. The real interest rate was much higher. On top of that, you got the sort of confluence of external, favorable external circumstances that we talked about in terms of commodity prices going up, China looking a little bit better, the Fed being more dovish. And you got the sort of political inflection in some sense that is unique to Brazil that certainly sort of has changed investor sentiment in terms of the clients we speak to. So I'd say it is, again, a combination of sort of better external backdrop, but also some fundamental improvement and people trying to price in this political change that has come through. The one cautionary note I would strike in terms of the forward-looking element of this is that in some respects, not so much on the equity market, but on the currency, I worry a little bit that it's gone too far almost, which is I think the last thing that Brazil needs today after having taken the pain that it has to move very swiftly again to an overvalued currency that in some sense thwarts the progress that it has made. You, it would be good to have a currency that is somewhat undervalued, or at least fairly valued, to cement this progress on the external side and build up some momentum for the future. So I worry a little bit that, at least in the currency, perhaps too much optimism being priced. So when the dust settles on the political turmoil in Brazil, how do you expect the country's economic approach to develop? You'll have a new set of policymakers in place. Should we expect a shift to more orthodox policies? 
I think that is certainly likely if you look even at the initial announcements coming out of the new administration in terms of the makeup of the policymakers, whether it is the new central bank governor, whether it's the head of the financial ministries and the other economic departments, it does look like there is a shift towards a more orthodox set of policies and a set of policies that I think should help consolidate the improvements already seen, but also make further improvements. Again, though, you know, I would be cautiously optimistic. I mean, I think the fiscal challenges that Brazil needs to address are hard, and they still have to deal with the parliament that was there previously. And, you know, we've learned, you know, over the last five or six years, fiscal consolidation at a time of slowing growth is not easy. It wasn't easy in, in large parts of Europe, and it's certainly not easy in an emerging market economy. It wasn't here, so easy here in the United States. It wasn't either, so easy, no. exactly. There are some bright spots in the BRIC countries. India is a great source of optimism for investors, and the recent economic data has been good. May 26th is the two-year anniversary of Prime Minister Modi's coming into office. How are investors rating his efforts so far, and what does the trajectory for India look like? I think, in a big-picture sense, the trajectory for India looks pretty positive. So I think the fact that it has been a source of optimism for investors is justified. But I'd make sort of a couple of remarks there in terms of the forward-looking side of things. First, I think it's not just the shift in political administration when Prime Minister Modi was elected that was part of the reason for India's outperformance in 2014, but also I think the strong framework of monetary stability that Governor Rajan put in place after he came into office in 2013, when really India was in the eye of the storm of the taper tantrum. It came out first partly because it was effect one of the hardest hit going into it. And so I think I would emphasize as well that that framework of monetary stability that has been in place needs to be maintained. There's some question mark over whether his term will be extended this autumn, and I think a lot of investors are looking at that pretty closely, apart from what is happening on the political front. On the reform front, if anything, I think until recently there was some disappointment after a lot of initial optimism. Yes, India's growth is one of the brighter spots in an emerging market world, which is generally growing weakly and below potential, but there wasn't much progress on the reforms, to be honest. But really, in the last couple of weeks, actually, a couple of pretty important and significant measures have finally gotten uh, instituted. So, you know, when I speak to clients, I do detect a little bit more of an optimism or a glimmer of optimism coming back, that maybe there is going to be some momentum on the reform front. So if India can cement that framework of monetary stability that has been in place in the last two or three years, plus add to that with some reform momentum, I think the trajectory looks bright for Indian assets. So financial conditions in the emerging markets has turned broadly positive recently, mostly because of the weakness in the dollar and the, and the dovish stance of the Fed, which we've talked about. Given that, Goldman Research sort of thinks the dollar's bottomed at the moment. How might that impact emerging market growth? Have they adjusted enough to be inoculated against such a rise? I wouldn't say so. I mean, if you have a very sharp increase, that is going to have an effect on emerging market financial conditions and on growth. And really, growth is the one missing point on the EM fundamental backdrop. I mentioned the improvement in the external rebalancing side. But what is missing in order to tell a really bullish EM story is you need a strong growth story. And really, we talked about India, but outside of India, maybe parts of Central Eastern Europe, there aren't many parts of the EM world that are truly growing strongly and growing above potential. So I think this easing in emerging market financial conditions is extremely welcome. And I think if it is sustained, I think that bodes well for at least a stabilization in growth and a gradual pickup going forward. 
So despite oil's recent rise, commodities remain a pressure point for a lot of these economies. Which countries have been hurt most by the prolonged slump in prices, and what is the path forward there? Given the slump in oil prices, and even with the bounce in oil prices, they remain at significantly lower levels than prior years. And I think if you are an oil exporting country, and a lot of emerging markets are, when you think about Russia, when you think about Colombia, when you think of the, the Gulf economies, and you have this level of hit to oil prices, some hit to your terms of trade, to your real incomes is inevitable. And I think as a country, you can to some extent choose where that pain falls, but taking some of that pain you, you have to do. And so there's been a somewhat of a bifurcation. Places like Russia have allowed the currency to depreciate and absorb the full impact of that oil price fall. And if anything, I think are now on a slightly stronger footing. On the other hand, you have many of the Gulf economies which have the dollar peg. Essentially, they haven't let the currency adjust, but the bulk of the adjustment has happened on the fiscal side. So their fiscal budgets have deteriorated enormously. And the adjustment they have to make in terms of addressing those fiscal uh, imbalances is also quite significant. So in some sense, that just shows you that you know, if you're an oil exporter and oil is crisis of hard, you face some tough trade-offs. You have to take the pain one way or the other. You can choose a little bit where you direct it, but mm -hmm. you can't choose not to take it. I think going forward, one more important feature of the commodity slump might be the divergence that we expect between oil and some of the metals, which is we see the physical rebalancing in the oil market to be further ahead than on the metal side, where both the combination of excess supply, but also the declining demand from China as it makes that transition from a fixed asset investment-based economy to a consumption-based economy, sort of dampens the demand for that metals. And so you might see some interesting divergence between places like, I said, you know, Russia, Colombia, some of the oil exporters, which have been hit hard and hit early, relative to the metals producers like Chile or, uh, you know, South Africa, that might see more ongoing pain. So very low inflation, in some cases deflation, uh, has proven to be a frustrating challenge for many developed markets. How are emerging markets reacting to those low inflation conditions elsewhere? It's a very different and nuanced picture across emerging markets. I mean, it's a very broad church is how I would describe it. There are parts of emerging markets that have that version of lowflation as, as a challenge. You know, roughly the emerging markets that I describe as the DMs of EM. So, you know, you think of places like Korea, you think of Israel, you know, Poland, um, even, even to some extent China face this issue of essentially inflation that is, you know, low, below target, in some cases zero or even negative, and despite quite easy monetary policy, struggling to get it back above target. But you have other parts of emerging market where the challenge is very different. So if you if you think about Russia and Brazil that we spoke about, if anything there, inflation was too high in the last few years, and it's now finally beginning to bend lower, you know, in, in, in both places. And places like South Africa, India, Again, high inflation has typically been the problem rather than low inflation. And you know, going forward, they're going to be somewhere in the, in the middle of those two groups. So yes, there is a low inflation problem in parts of emerging markets, but it's by no means as broad-based as it is across, I think, the developed world. In your conversations with clients, KT, what countries and markets are generating the most interest? Where do investors see the most potential or the most value? So we talked about Brazil. That's clearly a you know, focus of much interest and much conversation. I think Russia is the other place where we've seen you know, 
significant interest. Uh, you know, it's obviously been hard hit not just by the oil prices, but also by the sanctions. But the combination of the fact that it depreciated early and, and significantly, and it adjusted its current account, you know, very, very significantly, it was in some senses forced to become self-sufficient, which means that now, and, you know, really since the start of the year, we've been highlighting Russia as a, as a very attractive investment opportunity from the currency front, and we continue to have one of the most constructive forecasts there. We think there is more room for the currency to appreciate, and we certainly think there is significant room for interest rates to fall as inflation bends lower. India continues to be a topic of interest, especially if the reform momentum uh, starts moving higher. Indonesia is another place which has made significant improvements and I think is something that was for a while underappreciated by many investors, but I think now that's certainly a focus. And most recently, I'd say, you know, the political shifts in Argentina, I think they are garnering some interest as well. I mean, you make the best returns in many of these places after a crisis or after a big political shift when you have an inflection. And so the possibility of an inflection in Argentina, the possibility of growth, you know, beginning to bottom and move up in Russia and Brazil. I think those are some of the places that attract quite a lot of client interest. So some commentators have been nervous about the emerging debt levels in some of these countries. And they even go so far as to speculate that foreshadows another financial crisis like we saw in the, in the 1990s across Asia and actually in Brazil and Russia as well, or in Latin America in the 80s. How big of a risk is EM debt right now to the broader economic outlook? I think the nature of the challenge is quite different from the late 90s and uh, and early 80s. I mean, I think, you know, to the extent that we always learn the lessons from the last war, I mean, a lot of emerging markets have taken out quite a lot of insurance against those sorts of crises. In general, sovereign external debt is relatively low, mm -hmm. and the reserve buffers that many of these countries have built up are quite high. So, you know, I think the bar for a sort of true sovereign default amongst the major emerging markets that we cover, I think, is pretty high. I mean, I'd Reserves are in solid shape. They haven't taken on quite as much external right. debt. That's They've right. done more domestic financing of it. Exactly. Yeah. And, and the growth of the local currency debt markets has really been the structural change over the past decade or, or so. So in some senses, that original sin that emerging markets couldn't issue their debt in local currency and therefore face these kinds of challenges every time they had a currency depreciation is not as acute as it was. And it's it's also why we have seen crises level currency depreciations without crises. I think the challenge that exists today from the debt issue is more of a sort of corporate one, which is that I think certain corporates in many emerging markets have taken on a lot of external debt. And I think you could see pockets of distress in those particular places. Other than that, I'd say, you know, domestic debt you know, we talked about it in China, but it's also, you know, pretty significant in other places. I think parts of Turkey has some of that over leverage issue as well. And so to me, the way that manifests itself generally is sort of pockets of distress where you have that external debt or some degree of underperformance of bank equities and things like that, a more normal sort of credit cycle as opposed to sovereign default, where I think uh, I still think the bar is pretty high. All right, KT, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. Thanks for listening. This podcast was recorded on May 17, 2016. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. 
Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.